Welcome to the Lorecast, where we look into the lore and the stories by which we live. I'm Dr. Craig Chalkwist, and you can find us at chalkwist.com slash podcast and at a number of other online venues. Is human nature innately good? Or innately evil? Or just neutral? You know, it seems that to maintain that human nature is innately good is the tougher argument that it's fairly easy to find examples of people being evil (laughs) at all levels. Um, We have a worldwide economic system that's based in part on pillaging people who can't defend themselves, for instance. Um, As I record this, there are several members of the U.S. Congress who are under investigation, and instead of denouncing them, their supporters are making excuses for their evil behavior. So one could come up with many examples of this sort of thing. But I think we need to look a bit deeper. And what we need to consider, first of all, is what do we mean by good? And second, once we get a little bit clearer on that, can a case be made? And in a moment, I'm going to draw on the Chinese philosopher Mencius, um, also Mengzi, and known by other names, because he addressed this question before almost anybody else did. And... When I think about all the humanistic psychology I soaked up over the years, I hear so much Mencius in it, whether he's acknowledged or not. Usually not, actually. I think he just anticipated a lot of this. So we're going to see what he has to say, and I'll add a few of my own experiences into the mix as well. So in terms of human nature being innately good, and what does the word good mean? Um... Well, if we have a shallow understanding of good, it's easy to shoot that whole argument down. Um, If we mean nice, for instance, or um, good in terms of having good manners or being pleasant to be around or whatever, that's all rather surface. We can go a little bit deeper if we think about good, in quotes, more along the lines of an innate tendency to actualize oneself. There's the humanistic psychology part. But it's also Eric Fromm and Karen Horney and a number of others. They're referred to in the psych literature as neo-analytical, but I think they were actually early humanistic psychologists. And part of what they maintain, and there's bits of Jung here too, is that everything wants to realize its potential. Everything has a drive to grow, to expand its possibilities. And that's Drive is not restricted to human beings. We see it everywhere. So an example that comes up is um, in that literature is uh, if you put a rock on top of, let's say, a small tree that's trying to grow, it will grow around the rock, but it'll grow bent. I think that comes from either Maslow or Carl Rogers. I can't remember which, but uh, I think Rogers. But you can see in that that it's still trying to grow. It's still trying to reach the light. So if we mean good in that sense, in in the sense of trying to be in accord with one's own nature, trying to realize one's own possibilities, then I think we, on that basis, perhaps we can make a case. Instead of getting stuck in the cultural relativism of, well, what one society says is good, is bad in another society, and all this. Instead, what we're talking about is a universal tendency that some of us would actually extend right down into matter itself that the universe itself is evolving somehow. Um, Maybe that's for another podcast. 
But I'm here. I'm thinking of the work of Brian Swim, for instance, and uh, Matt Segal, and the philosopher Whitehead, who also added creativity. He said the universe that we live in is abundantly and ongoingly creative. So that might be another way of thinking about this too, that we share in the creativity of the cosmos. Now, these analogies of growth and realization don't originate in the people I just named. They go all the way back to Mencius, Mengzi, other names come up too with him. And so let's talk about him a little bit. He was such an interesting man, and he was born around the year in the Western calendar, maybe 370, 371, BCE. And so he was a few generations after Confucius, also known as Master Kong or um, Kung Fu Tzu. And there's actually a tradition that um, Mencius studied under one of the grandsons of Confucius. But be that as it may, his life has a lot of really amazing parallels with those of Confucius. He was kind of a wandering wisdom giver, and he was concerned with human nature, more than Confucius, actually, um, but also with politics and how people can have the good society and get along with each other. And he offered advice to the rulers of his time. And of course, this was during the Warring States period, so it wasn't always easy to give advice or safe, but he did it nonetheless. He seems to have been quite a courageous person. And many of the values we think of as part of traditional Chinese society were emphasized not only by Confucius, but also Mencius, who in some ways was kind of the next evolution of Confucian thought. And so he emphasized things like filial piety and uh, respect for elders and so on. So we can picture him going around China. He was born in Shandong province and uh, speaking to people about developing one's own character. This, by the way, is during the time of Plato in the West. Developing one's own character. And that if we do that to the utmost, we serve heaven. And he talks about heaven a lot. And so um, this is going to be too brief to do any justice to this because it's an enormous um concept, perception, whatever you want to call it, in Chinese history and tradition. But heaven at times has been uh, personified as a sort of fatherly figure, a celestial figure. So there are some similarities to the, the Western idea of God. Carl Jung would have said the God image. But they're not really exact. And so you could think of heaven as a sort of overriding power, that orders the universe. Maybe that would be a good way of thinking about it. And uh, heaven is the source of uh, all all earthly things, including virtue, um, all good earthly things. And so to be in accord with heaven, as well as to be in accord with earth, is a good thing. And so what Mencius says is that if we want to be useful members of our culture and useful in our families and also wise then one of the things that we have to do is a form of self-cultivation through which we go looking, we seek for the lost original mind. We seek for the goodness that we come in with. And he seems to have been the first to really emphasize that aspect of human nature and to use very similar analogies to what we talked about previously. So Mencius talks about growth, for instance, and how 
even when growth is hindered and stunted, it's still, the impulse to grow is still there. It's still trying to break through, even if you can't see it on the surface. And so from this springs not only his view of human nature, but also his view of human society. So for instance, he was a huge advocate of what he referred to as humane government, not government for material advantage, not oppression, not keeping people down or controlling them, but governing in such a way that it calls on the best in human nature throughout the society. A kind of government that recognizes that although different people have different titles, roles, and responsibilities, which for Mencius have to be clarified, they have to be rectified. Not only that, all the differences, but for Mencius underlying all that, we're the same. We're all part of the same family. And so he's not boasting when during one of his conversations with uh, different people who are asking him about how does all this work, he refers to two legendary figures, uh, Yao and Shun, who are, you could think of them as sage kings from the ancient past in China. Uh, Yao was in power at one time, and then he, um, he was followed by Shun because heaven decided that Shun was the appropriate leader. Uh, Yao, I think, had a son at one point who technically was supposed to be the next emperor, but heaven decided otherwise because of Shun's qualities. And so at one point, Mencius is not boasting when he says, I'm the same as those two, Yao and Shun, and we all are. And so because everybody at a fundamental level is equal to everybody else, everyone has the potential to be better, even to be a sage, and to have righteous behavior, and show humaneness to everybody, including oneself. Incidentally, he was one of the earliest examples, in sharp contrast to Plato in some ways, of a thinker who said government depends on the people, as well as on the mandate of heaven. So uh, I want to read you something that he says about human nature. It's, um, it's engendered language. Man's nature is naturally good just as water naturally flows downward. There is no man without this good nature, neither is there water that does not flow downward. Now you can strike water and cause it to splash upward over your forehead, and by damming and leading it, you can force it uphill. Is this the nature of water? It is the force circumstance that makes it do so. Man can be made to do evil, for his nature can be treated in the same way. I can't tell you how many times I saw this unfold uh, in my psychotherapy practice, as well as in my years as a graduate instructor. But in that practice in particular, the six years that I spent working with men who were referred by the courts to be in mandatory counseling because they had been violent with somebody, that's where I saw this operating. And it actually turned me into an optimist where human nature is concerned, because when you get to know people that well, whether they're batterers or whether they're professional killers or even men who have killed a lot of people, when you see what's going on inside them and why they do what they do, it changes your view. But you have to really look and listen. If you come to that kind of work with preconceived ideas, then you're, you're just going to see another criminal passing through the system. But... 
especially if you can get the trust of some of these men or just hear about them being confronted by other men in group and talking about how it used to be in the past and where they came from, um, what their upbringing was like, how abused they are. It certainly doesn't excuse any of their current behavior. There is no excuse for it, but it does give it context. It makes it very clear that even in violence, these men are trying to regain some of their self-respect and trying not to feel ashamed of themselves. And the bitter thing, of course, is that the more they do it through force, the worse they feel about themselves anyway. And so the question arises, well, what about incurable sociopaths and people like that? So didn't work with a lot of them, but work with some. And um, even in them, their manipulative tactics, their lies, um, all of that, you can see that it's an attempt to put themselves forward, to express themselves, to assert themselves, to rise up above the tremendous inner pain that they all have. These are fumbling and harmful and symptomatic attempts to actually advocate for themselves on an unconscious level. They're trying to scrape together whatever self-esteem and control over their lives they can muster. Does it mean that they're curable when you understand this? Carl Rogers would probably have said yes. I would say no, a firm no. Um, the whole thing of curability, of course, is a medical model way of looking at it. But whether men transform their lives or not is up to them. It's a matter of choice. And some of them don't make that choice. But nobody starts out that way. When you look at these men as infants, as children, sometimes you can see the beginnings of the disturbance and the unhappiness and the violence, um, such as when thinking of examples where... Um, Kids are uh, mistreating animals, for instance. It's a cry for help, basically. But if you go back before then, if you go back even earlier, even in the cradle, there's no such thing as an evil baby. Or as Mencius would put it, if man does evil, it is not the fault of his natural endowment. Humanity, righteousness, propriety, and wisdom are not drilled into us from outside. We originally have them with us. Only we do not think to find them. Therefore it is said, Seek, and you will find it. Neglect, and you will lose it. So we have to look for and develop these qualities in ourselves if they're to become effective. One of the things I appreciate about how Mencius holds all this is he not only makes room for choice and says it's up to us to do the work, but he doesn't try to soft-pedal evil. He doesn't pretend that um, you know, we're all good and we just get confused about things and or any of that. Um, here's another example. He says, The trees of New Mountain were once beautiful, but can the mountain be regarded any longer as beautiful since, being in the borders of a big state, the trees have been hewed down with axes and hatchets. When people see that the mountain is so bald, they think that there was never any timber on the mountain. Is this the true nature of the mountain? And he compares the way we lose our goodness to the way that mountain got butchered. There's a hint here, too, about our current planet-wide environmental crisis as well. When we look around ourselves and we see the pollution and destruction and everything else going on, that's us. That's a reflection of us. 
that we've lost ourselves. Mencius continues, therefore, with proper nourishment and care, everything grows, whereas without proper nourishment and care, everything decays. Confucius said, hold it fast and you preserve it. Let it go and you lose it. It comes in and goes out at no definite time and without anyone's knowing its direction. And Mencius comments, he was talking about the human mind. Mencius also criticizes thinkers of his day for not leading us back to our own nature and getting lost in abstract arguments. Um, I wonder what he would have made of the centuries of abstract Western philosophy that came after him. He comments, What I dislike in your wise men is their forced reasoning. If those wise men would only act as you did when he diverted the water to the sea, there would be nothing to dislike in their wisdom. Yu is a famous figure out of Chinese legend who uh, saved things by diverting a river. Yu diverted the water, he continues, as if he were acting without any special effort, for he had followed the natural tendencies. If wise men would act without any special effort, such as forced reasoning, their wisdom would also be great. Inhuman crimes kinds of violence, deception, oppression, and just downright evil behavior. What we see, according to this viewpoint, is a struggle to be reborn, overshadowed by fear and ignorance. When we see this kind of behavior in ourselves and each other, Mencius advises that we, it should be met with uprightness, that we should continue to be our best in spite of it and not get pulled down into it. It seems to me that in our day, this kind of advice and insight are more necessary than ever. There's a struggle going on now about the status of the humanities in higher education. And uh, for a long time now, they've been defunded in favor of um, STEM, in other words, technological education. And sure, we need science and technology education, no question about that. But we also need the humanities to tell us why and how we're using the technology and science, as well as the politics and the finance and everything else that we do. And I think this is an example. I think Mencius is a voice that speaks from thousands of years ago to enlighten a situation that is with us today, because human nature being what it is, the same problems keep coming up. And the only thing to guard against them is a combination of vigilance, clear-sighted vigilance, and knowledge of what wise people in the past did when they confronted similar problems. By learning what happened before and how it was dealt with, whether successfully or not, perhaps we stand a better chance of meeting these challenges with our humaneness while avoiding making some of the mistakes of the past over and over and over again. Thank you.